Welcome to the Militant Growing Podcast. Today, I have a guest that is so honorable for just sharing this story. Um, I did my own research about it. I was kind of, you know, it's kind of heavy on me, but I, I got the courage to go ahead and, you know, talk to you about it and, and fully and, you know, let you go ahead and, and just take it. So I have Susan Snow, author of The Other Side of the Gun, My Journey from Trauma to Resiliency. So, Susan, before we get into, um, you know, the day the event occurred that changed your life and uh, on October 31st, 1985, I want to talk about how it was for you actually growing up, um, you know, your family life, how 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 that was. Well, um, growing up with a police officer father was interesting at best. Um when I was younger, uh, it was, it could be embarrassing at times, you know, because um, young kids, they just, you know, they listen to their parents and they listen to the things that are said about law enforcement. And then they turn around and say the same things. So I had to hear some of the derogatory uh, stuff around police officers, but I think the funniest thing was uh, when I was in fifth or sixth grade, fifth and sixth grade, um, we were bused. We were bused from Canoga Park to North Hollywood area. And mm-hmm. uh, my dad's uh, precinct was in North Hollywood. So that's mm-hmm. where he worked out of. And being a detective, uh, he would drive an undercover type car. Um so anytime I had a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment or something like that, uh, he got the honor of taking me since he could pick me up from school. Mm-hmm. And the issue with that is uh, people didn't realize that it was him most of the time picking me up. So the rumor mill would would start <laughs> swirling. When people saw me leaving in a undercover car, um, it was, I came back to school to, oh, did you get busted? Did you, uh, were you doing drugs? Like, like, <laughs> 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 I'm like no, yeah, <laughs> people, that was my dad. <laughs> right. So, I mean, early on, it was just, you know, it was that, um, just dealing with kind of the the funny, embarrassing moments. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, but what I was really blessed with was the fact that I just always felt very safe. You know, yeah. I had that sense of safety with him. He was my protector mm-hmm. and, um, and that was just a given, you know, he, he always made that, he always made that, uh, known and a priority. And so I also grew up with a dad who was very much about education and educating me to be safe. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially being female. Um, So he would always give me tips (laughs) as I got older, you know, on what to do if I came up against certain situations. Mm -hmm. And then I got into the dating age and it got really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I bet it did. 
Because they hear they hear like the worst of the worst stories and they observe the worst of the worst stories. So it's like, you know, what's normal to them isn't really normal to like the regular civilian. Uh, my grandfather was a detective and he'll just say something like, oh, like we were cutting a cake. And he was like, I remember I uh, I went into this murder and it was a knife just like this. And we were just sitting over here like, come on, man. Like, you know, it's, it's easy for him to talk about, but then it's just like for regular people it's like oh come on you know yeah well and you got to understand too so um they compartmentalize things yeah right and so for them that's like a normal conversation because that's what they're used to talking about at work right? right and sometimes they can't um their brain doesn't work that way you know so my dad would do the same thing he'd come home and i'd be eating dinner and he'd be describing the dead body he found and what it looked like after three days <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'd have to look at him and say, you know what, dad, like, this is not the time. <laughs> yeah. You're grossing me out. Stop. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I remember. But my grandpa- that's yeah. what they're used to. You know what I mean? That's, that's what they do. They mm-hmm. just, uh, they, they, they learn to compartmentalize things. Yeah. And it just comes out in inopportune times. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And so how is your relationship uh, with your father just like one-on-one, just you and him? Oh, my gosh. So my dad was like my best friend. Mm-hmm. The one thing I can tell you about him is that anytime you were with him, whether you were his child or a friend or a colleague, he always made you feel like you were the number one person, like you were the most important thing. And he was very present. Mm-hmm. Um. So I felt like I could go to my dad with just about anything and be honest with him. And he didn't judge me, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt heard by him a lot of the time because he did take the time to kind of find out what was going on with me. And even in his chaotic, crazy, you know, busy world, Mm-hmm. He still made me and my brother his priority all the time. Right. So um, I respected him for that, you know, and at the same time, <laughs> my dad had a way of just looking at me the wrong way. And I, and um, I'll give you an example. I got busted for, for smoking cigarettes at 13 years old. My brother was three at the time. And he's the one that told on me. <laughs> um, my friend and I were smoking in the backyard and we put our cigarette butts in a can mm-hmm. and shoved that can all the way underneath a deck. Mm-hmm. And then I took off and I went to my friend's house when my mom got home. And my brother immediately went to them and said, oh, Susan was smoking. <laughs> <laughs> um. And so my dad showed up at my friend's house mm-hmm. at the door and a um, little intimidating. He just looked at me and said, grab your things. You're coming home. That kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we didn't speak all the way home, which was even worse because mm-hmm. you're sitting there thinking, oh, my God, what did I do? I'm going to die. Right. 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 <laughs> so I got home, sat down on the couch and he brought out the can with the cigarette butts in it, put it right in front of me. And he said, 
what's this? And of course, being a teenager and being dumb, I said, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, I ended up fessing up to it Mm -hmm. and pretty much everything else that's ever happened to me in my life. Like my dad had a way of just looking at me a certain way. And then I would just start spewing my guts. Wow. So I don't know if it was like the detective in him, like he knew the certain questions to ask to pull out the information, but Mm -hmm. man, he just had a way and I would, I would just spill it. (laughs) Yeah. Cause it's like, I'm sure he, you know, deals with a lot of people that bullshit him, you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? So he's trained to pick that up, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And he, he, you know, he held me accountable Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, in hindsight, looking back at it, I thought it was a really great lesson for me um, when I got older, you know what I mean? And I could appreciate that and kind of laugh at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could definitely understand that. Yeah. And so now going up to uh, October 31st, 1985, um, can you tell talk to me about that day, like how you felt getting up and how the day went, like the entire day went for you? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, one of the things that since it was Halloween night, um, one of the things I talk about in my book is the last conversation I had with my dad. And that was around a party that I wanted to attend that night with my boyfriend and friends. And it was a Thursday night. So he was like, oh, no, you're not going to a party on a school night kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, So we kind of argued a little bit that morning, you know, and um, then he was getting ready for uh, he was supposed to testify that day in his case. And it was very odd for my dad to be nervous before a court case. He was never like that. And Mm -hmm. this particular morning, he was really hyper-focused on what he looked like, Um, which was not my, my dad was not a fashion, he wasn't a fashionista by any means. Mm -hmm. And so he, he was really struggling with like um, colors and of his suit and his tie and this and that. And of course, you know, since we had been arguing or whatever, I figured if I helped dad out then maybe it would change his mind about the party kind of thing. Right. Because teenagers are a little bit manipulative. (laughs) Um, So I, you know, I helped dad out and try to, you know, pick out his tie and make sure that he looked nice for his court date. But it was not, uh, he was not normally like that. So it was just kind of an odd morning. Mm -hmm. Um, He took me to school like any other day and dropped me off and, um, I spent the entire time in school trying to like come up with ways that I can manipulate my parents to allow me to go to this party at night. And I came home and it was, you know, like I said, it was a regular day. My dad was supposed to go pick up my brother from school. My mom um, was at work and uh, I ran around the house and cleaned the house, like whatever I could clean, I cleaned it. So I was Mm -hmm. going to show them. And that was responsible and that, you know, I should go to this party. And my mom came home and she was still in her costume 
and uh, was getting that uh, taken off. And then I was putting mine on and um, the phone rang. And being a teenager, I thought, well, you know, who else is going to get a phone call in this household? It's just going to be me. Right, right. <laughs> um, my brother was six and he was at school, you know, and my mom, you know, my mom and dad don't get phone calls. <laughs> so <laughs> it had to have been mine. Right. So I ran and I grabbed the phone and it uh, wasn't for me. Uh, it was a lady from my brother's school. And all he said, all she said on the phone was that my dad was uh and there was a drive-by shooting and my dad was involved. And that's all she said. Mm-hmm. And I just immediately handed the phone to my mom, you know, and she was taking her makeup off and stuff from her costume and talking to this lady. And I could see her posture change. And um, I just had this like deep pit in my stomach And she hung up the phone and she looked at me and said, we're going to the school. So we jumped in the car and the school was about, uh, from where we lived, it was about seven minutes um, to get there. And we didn't speak the whole time. Like nothing was said. Um, And we got to the school and we parked in the middle where the parking lot is the kids would get picked up on the backside of that, the school. Mm-hmm. So when we got out of the car, that's where we headed was the backside of the school. And the first thing that I saw was an ambulance with the lights going. There were police officers that were walking around and they had tears in their eyes. And I just knew it was not good. But again, didn't know what I was about to see. So when we saw my brother, my dad's truck, we made a beeline for it. And that's when we witnessed his body and the aftermath. And um, my mom just kind of dropped to her knees and a police officer was trying to hold her back. Um, And it was just, uh, my brain just didn't know how to uh, kind of navigate what was happening. Like I... I was in such shock at what I just saw, but at the same time, it was like talking about compartmentalizing. Like I was like, okay, well, I see an ambulance, so he must be okay, right? Or Mm -hmm. they're going to take care of him. And then the other part was what I just saw, right? And so just everything swirling in my head. Um I just still was not wrapping my head around what was actually happening. Right. And they took us to an office and um, some officers came and kind of took my mom aside and uh, left me in the office and I could overhear two ladies talking in the office. And one of them said, yes, you know, uh, Mr. Williams is deceased. And something in my head just snapped. Like I, it was like falling, you know, it just felt like I was spiraling and part of me just wanted to get up and run, like physically run out of there and just run away from this nightmare. Mm -hmm. And, 
And then my mom approached me and she said, I'm sending you with a neighbor. And the other part of me was like, but wait, you know, where's my brother? Is he hurt? I want to be with my family unit. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I need to see them. I need to be here with them. But my mom said, no, you're, you're going with a neighbor. So she sent me away. And, um, so I had to try to navigate all of this stuff kind of on my own, you know, the neighbor tried, I mean, she was in shock herself. Mm-hmm. Um, we had lived there for many years, so they knew my parents very well. Their daughter was my best friend in elementary school. So it was really, um, you know, shocking. And then. I didn't know how to navigate this. Like I being 17, especially I just, I was a kid myself. Right. So, um, I was dating my now husband back then we were three months into our dating when this happened and the neighbor called him at work and said, you need to come home. You need to come to my house. And she didn't really give him a lot of information. And when I got on the phone, I was so hysterical. I couldn't give him any information. So when he showed up at the door, his mindset was that we were going to a hospital. You know, he was going to pick me up and take me to the hospital that my dad was at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he he was very animate, like, get your, get your jacket. Let's go. You know, I'll, what hospital is he at? You know, we'll just, we'll head there right now. Where's your mom? Like all of that. And I, I was so, I was struggling with getting the words out, you know, because I thought if I say it, it's real. Right. And, but he was so animate. I finally just blurted it out that he was gone. And, you know, my, my husband my boyfriend then, um, he did this, he had the same reaction. He dropped to his knees and he was just in total shock with me. And he was 19 at the time. Mm -hmm. So he stayed with me that night and we were both trying to like figure out what our next steps were. (laughs) Like, what, what do we do? We, you know, how do we deal with this? And, um, I mean, it's a nightmare that I don't wish on anyone. Um, it got really complicated because my entire block where I lived, which was usually very quiet, was filled with police officers. And, um, when I did finally go home, my house was packed full of people. I had no idea who they were. Um, I could hear my mom in the background a little bit talking to somebody, but she never approached me. You know, she was busy um, with whatever and, you know, whatever she had to deal with. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it was just, it was a, it was, um, it was really, really difficult to wrap your head around what was happening around you, you know? Right. I just wanted to go into my room and hide. <laughs> and at even at that point, like I wanted, I, I wondered where my brother was, but at the same time, it was like, I was not in the state of mind 
to help anyone. You know what I mean? Like, uh, Mm -hmm. I didn't even know how to help myself. So I figured my mom would handle my brother and, or somebody would, you know, be there for my brother. And I was just trying to navigate all of the emotions that were going through my head at the time. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, um, um, I did do a little reading about it and I did see that your dad, um, one of they like he has a it's called a valor medal it's, oh the medal of valor yeah the medal of valor right yep. <laughs> the medal of valor yes um for actually protecting your brother during yes. that shooting yes and you know that was a very commendable thing and then you know just uh oh we and it's just it's just it's just a miracle that your brother is still here yep you know, cause due to the type of weapon that we use, it was yes. an automatic gun, you know, yes. and we are, you know, I, I have guns and, you know, it's hard to hit, you know, your target when you at the gun range, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just due yeah. to the fact that like, he's still here and your dad protecting him while it was going on is nothing yep. but a miracle, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, yeah, he was given that medal of valor posthumously to my brother mm-hmm. um and later in 20 2011 he was one of the police first police officers to receive the purple heart um because the armed forces decided that they were going to allow police officers who were killed in the, you know killed in the line of duty to receive um the purple heart as well. So we received that together. He and I, mm-hmm. um, in Los Angeles. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's definitely amazing. And so, um, that day, well, your brother, he wasn't actually like at the house. You didn't see him or notice him or anything like that. So I didn't get to see my brother until the following day. Okay. Um, and you know, Obviously, he was very young, so I'm 10 years older than him. Mm-hmm. And so all I could do was hug him and tell him I love him, and that was about it. I mean, I was not, you know, I was a kid myself and just trying to um, function, really. Yeah. it was It was really difficult, so... It was very, uh, the time was very different in the fact that my mom kind of did her own thing. Um, You know, she was dealing with probably all of the logistical stuff and all of the, you know, the stuff on top of her own grief and then Mm -hmm. dealing with my brother who was six and, um, So there was a lot going on, you know, and we all kind of, uh, well, I would say my mom and my brother kind of stayed with each other. And then I was kind of off the side. Mm -hmm. Um, it even, it like, it took the media two days to figure out he had a teenage daughter and, and that was hard. You know, because I had 17 years with this man and he was Mm -hmm. my best friend 
And I wanted everybody to know that like he was my best friend. I just lost my best friend. And, yeah. um, but I didn't, you know, I just had to deal with what was going on around me. You know what I mean? So that's all I did. You know, I did. And I went where every, like everybody just kind of moved me in the way that I needed to go. Mm-hmm. And I just followed. Right. Cause there was no, I was living in a fog after that, you know, the shock was just so intense and, uh, it just sent me into a fog mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so when did you um, go back to school? Um, it was a little while. Um, I think I stayed out for about three weeks. Mm-hmm. And I think that wasn't enough time anyway, just because um, because it was all over the news and everybody knew about it. Right. Yeah. Everybody knew what happened. Um, kids were coming out to the media and saying they were my best friend and they, I had never met them a day in my life. Um, but there was one situation. Oh yeah. It happened all the time, (laughs) all the time. Um, there was one day where I had gone back to school and I was sitting in a psychology class Mm -hmm. and again, you know, going back to school and being in a fog is not a good thing. (laughs) Um, I really don't even know how I got through my senior year, to be honest. Uh, But I was sitting in this class and there was a kid that was sitting in front of me and he turned around and started to ask me how many bullets hit my dad. And I think I was just in shock, like, what did you just ask me? (laughs) Um, It was a little crazy. And Mm -hmm. so I got up from my chair and I left the room. I didn't say anything to the teacher. I just walked out Mm -hmm. and went down the hall. And we had uh, a gentleman who was a coach. He was a football coach and he coached a couple of different things. And then he was also a Spanish teacher. He saw me in the uh, hallway And of course I was upset Uh, and he stopped me and he said, are you okay? And I told him what happened and what he said to me was so amazing at the time, but he said, you know what, Susan, I am so sorry that that happened and kids can say stupid things. You know, that was, that was a stupid thing that he said to you. And I'm so sorry that you know, that happens. But um, if you feel like you need to go home, we'll call your mom and have you picked up. But just know that we all are here for you. And if you need anything, you know, I'm here. And that was pretty profound for me because at the time, no adult was helping me feel that way or Mm -hmm. feel heard, you know, And I needed that. I needed to hear from another adult that they heard me and that they are there for me and that they understand what I'm, you know, they don't understand what I'm going through, but, you know, they understand that it's going to take time. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, and coach Lugo was the one person that did that for me. And I, I will always be grateful for that. He's, he's passed on, but you know, that memory is something that 
I hold dear for sure. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how that happened because, you know, earlier you said that your dad was one of the people in your life that did have you feel heard, you know, growing up. And I know back in those times, like nobody really cared about mental health or nope. children's thoughts or like what, you know, nope. you were going through as a child. It was just kind of like, ah, whatever, they'll figure it out. You know, she wasn't the one at the scene. Her brother was. So maybe he's feeling a lot worse than her. You yeah. know what I mean? So. Yep. And then, you know, I'm not a believer in coincidence, but it just kind of, you know, just kind of gets to me how that young man asks that to you. You go outside, you know, and you you leave and next thing you know, boom, you know, you hit somebody yeah. that would give you the same advice your dad would give you if he were yeah. here. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a weird event. It's like, okay, yeah. it's happened. <laughs> but then if it didn't happen, I wouldn't have heard this, like, this great news that, well, not great news, this great saying that actually, like, helped me. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And so I was grateful, you know, because, like I said, at the time, there was no adults around. You're right. In the 80s, there was no conversations around mental health. Mm -hmm. um, teenagers weren't heard. You know, we weren't asked what our feelings were like, because if we did, like if we were upset, you know, we would hear things like, well, I'll give you something to be upset about. You know, yeah. right? it's just like yeah. it was a different time. And it was, you know, and um, I understand now in hindsight, like my mom came from the silent generation, right? Mm -hmm. And so they really didn't talk about things. But at the same time, I felt like um, like she turtled a bit into herself. You know what I mean? And it it was about her and it was about my brother. And I was not a priority at the time is what I felt like, right? Yeah. That was my experience even being pushed to a neighbor's house that night um, was hard. And, it, you know, in writing the book, I just realized, wow, like, I don't think that would be the reaction that I would have had. I'm a mom. And mm -hmm. I think for myself, I would grab onto my babies and let them know that they're not alone and that I'm here and that I love them. And, we'll get through this together kind of thing. Um, that was not the reaction that I received. So that was, um, that was kind of a, a, a turning point for sure. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. And so did you have any, um, you know, usually when stuff like this happens, a lot of people resort to, let's say like self-sabotage or, you know, drugs or something like that. They, you know, it's like they end up creating a habit that can be like damaging to them because they're trying to escape, you know, the pain. And I'm sure back then no one was like, Oh, you should see the school therapist or a therapist mm -hmm. to help you through this problem. Like, you know, therapy back then was, you know, we kind of know it's like, you're, you have to be really crazy. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, it's like, yeah, you know, they, exactly. and it's like, people often confuse uh, psychiatry with psychology. Right. You know, so it's like, no, those are two different fields. You know, you don't Absolutely. have to be banging your head against the wall to see a <laughs> psychologist or have therapy. Right. You know? Right. So is there like what mechanisms did you 
kind of like get into and and if you don't mind sharing like if there's something that you turn to you know that you don't mind uh you know talking about because i really want to just showcase that there are unhealthy things that people do to escape trauma that we need to just be aware at but then we are aware of but then we also need to be aware of the healthy ways to escape trauma you know well i think um the environment around me uh, mm-hmm. deterred me from that. I watched my mom drink to handle her trauma. And I saw what it did to her. And I saw how it was slowly destroying our relationship. And I just didn't want that for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I didn't I didn't know how to deal with myself. Like I didn't know what to say. I would say the most unhealthy thing that I did and a lot of people do is I wore a mask and my mask was, I'm fine. I'll get through this. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about me. Like, I'm not going to put this burden on you. I will handle this all by myself. I will figure this out. Right. That's not a healthy that's not a healthy mindset either. Right. right. So I did that for a long time. And, you know, people around me, friends, and, you know, they didn't, this was so much out of the norm that nobody knew how to deal with me. So everybody kind of stepped on eggshells, like, Ooh, don't say that. Or don't this, the, you know, um, RoboCop came out. My head friends like call me and say, don't go to that movie. Don't see that movie. Mm. You can't do that. You can't see that movie. And I was like, okay. okay." Um, But about a month into, uh, it was about a month after my dad was killed. LAPD actually came to us and said, we think you should see a therapist, Mm. each one of you. And, you know, we'll take care of it. And here are the names of the people that you should all go see. So my mom saw someone, I saw someone and my brother saw someone. I had no idea what therapy was Mm -hmm. (laughs) in my mind. Like you said, in my mind, you go to a therapist if you're crazy. Right. Right. Only crazy people go to therapists, but I thought, okay, well, if LAPD is telling me I should do this, then I should do this. If my mom is telling me to do this, then I should do this. Um, So I saw this therapist. And honestly, I think in hindsight, I don't think that he was qualified to deal with the amount of trauma that we dealt with. Mm -hmm. Um, But our sessions were very shallow. And basically, all he wanted to talk about was my uh, relationship with my mom, my relationship with my brother, my boyfriend and school. And every week, and you got to understand, like by this time I was having full fledged, I didn't know it then, but PTSD uh, disorders, things that were coming up, the Mm -hmm. anxiety, the deep depression, suicidal ideation, I, I I was thinking about ways that I could take my own life mm. all the time. And um, we were not discussing this and he was not asking me questions. 
And I didn't know how to be, I didn't know how to verbalize what was going on in my head. And part of me was probably scared too at the time mm-hmm. because that sounds crazy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I didn't know how to verbalize and he didn't ask questions right. for an entire year. And then after that year came up, he said to me that he said, Susan, you're a well-rounded young lady and you're strong and I don't need to see you anymore. You're going to be fine for the rest of your life. After only a year, that a is year. crazy. And I thought, <laughs> wow, but I have all of this stuff swirling around in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm watching my mom drink and self-sabotaging, you know, stuff. Um, and my brother is little and, you know, he doesn't know how to handle all this. I can't handle all of this and help him. Right. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm just crazy. And this is just how it's going to be for the rest of my life. So that's what I, that was the mindset I took on. Hmm. That's interesting. So how, how was your relationship um, with your boyfriend, no, now husband at that time, like during that time, you know, I know when, you know, it could be a little rocky because of how you're acting and he might not be receiving the type of love that he deserves from a woman. So how, how was that relationship while all of that was going on? Oh, I think we both had the mask on. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, he went through the trauma too. He may not have seen what I saw. Yeah. But everything from then on was pretty traumatic and seeing things on TV. And he knew my dad for three months. So they mm-hmm. had created a relationship. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it was hard for a young man. I mean, gosh, at 19, most guys would have said, bye bye. <laughs> right. This is too much. Yeah. Like, I'm out. But he, he made the choice to stick around. He made a choice to be there for me. And I think part of that was that he saw where my mom was headed. And he thought, if I'm not her friend, what is she going to, you know, where is she going to end up? Right. Mm-hmm. So, cause she won't have any support system. Right. Um. So I think for a long time, like, I lived in fight or flight <laughs> for years and years. I think he did too. Mm-hmm. Neither one of us knowing that, right? We just went through life the way we were supposed to or the way that we were encouraged to. Um, and I, you know... I don't believe that we should have married as early as we did. I was 21 and he was 23 mm-hmm. or 24. And I don't think either one of us was ready for marriage. Um, but we had been dating for so long that that was like the next step. That was yeah. what we were expected to do, mm-hmm. you know, and both of us were very much about, following the expectations of others. Right. 
And so, you know, I think he struggled too. And it came out later. I, I talk about it in the book. Um, it, it, it came to a head Mm -hmm. and, um, he, he had a wandering eye and I was in such flight or flight for so long. I, I didn't want to see it. Right. I, I walked around with rose colored glasses on, Mm -hmm. um, I hid behind the truth. I didn't want to see what was happening. Everybody, because we were together at such a young age, everybody was like, oh, you guys are the perfect couple. You're like Ken and Barbie. You know what I mean? And it was like, that was the facade that I wanted to continue. Mm -hmm. But I knew that our, our relationship was not strong. And I knew that in my heart, I knew that he wasn't, fully committed um, to me. And part of it was, I think he struggled between not leaving me because of what I went through um, and the trauma and the fact that, you know, he knew that I struggled for years, Mm -hmm. but I think he had that feeling of, you know, Maybe there's something better out there for me, or I've been dealing with this life for a long time and it's, you know, I, I I think I need something different. Right. And, um, boy, was he wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it was a journey for him, you Mm -hmm. know, writing this book. This wasn't just about my journey. It was his too. Yeah. It was right alongside me. And still yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least you're able to be, you know, understanding about it because, you know, he didn't have a chance to really like go doing his own thing, you know, explore, see if this is something that he really wants. He right. was more so just being so loyal to you at the time, you know, yeah. so that that is a, you know, and kudos to you for that, because a lot of people, they won't be able to understand that in order to move on and do something greater you know a lot of times we lack the understanding of someone else because we're just you know in our own minds a lot you know yeah. so that's a that's well, really I think a great writing thing. the book i i realized that i wasn't a hundred percent there either right when someone is living in fight or flight their entire life and just trying to figure out how to live life with that Mm-hmm. Um, and all the things that come with that, you know, um, panic attacks and just all kinds of things, insecurities and all right. of that. Um, you can't be a hundred percent there with your partner. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. So he didn't really have a partner that was there you know, really present. Um, And I'm sure that was hard at times. And, you know, we had conversations around the fact that um, when I was in the process of writing the book and I, and I was talking to my coach at the time and she made me realize that this, this, it's my burden and it's not yours. And, you know, you can come to me and help me or try to help me all you want. I'm going to push you away because I've got this, you know, I'll figure this out myself. Mm -hmm. And this pattern 
followed me and it followed me in my career, but it also followed me in my relationship. Yeah. And I had a conversation with him one night and I said, I realize I did this to you and I'm, I want you to know, I, I want to apologize because I know that there were times that you wanted to try to be there for me and support me in some way. And I pushed you away. Mm-hmm. And I am so sorry that I did that because it probably made you feel like you weren't important. And I don't ever want you to feel that way. So with that being said, right. <laughs> how do you think you just saying those few sentences to him change the trajectory of your relationship? Oh my gosh. Like huge. <laughs> Like huge. I will tell you what changed the trajectory of our relationship is him reading my book. Mm -hmm. Um, It took me four and a half years to write this. And in that four and a half years, he uh, never, I I never gave him a snip. uh, Well, I tried. I tried to give him a snippet here and there. (laughs) And he refused. He said, I'm not going to read this until it's done. Mm -hmm. And when it was in paper, and printed. He finally read it. And it does talk about, you know, we did divorce. He did have a child with another woman who is my youngest kid. Um, And I love him like as if he's my own. He's he and I have a super close relationship. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, he has kids yourself. Yeah, we have two. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And then he had another. And then he had a child with another woman and we did divorce. Mm-hmm. It didn't last because the universe said, nope, you guys aren't done yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so we reconciled and we did get remarried. Um, but he read the book and I think that I showed him a side of me that he has never seen. And I gave him an insight to everything that went on with me for four years in mm-hmm. writing this book, four and a half years. And Um, I think that's what really changed our relationship a lot was his insight and being able to know, because I do talk about in the book, like he went through trauma Mm -hmm. and it's, we went through so much therapy together as Mm -hmm. you know, couple therapy. We never dealt with it. We never dealt with his trauma. And I felt like that was unfair Right. Because right. I was healing myself and he didn't get to heal his self. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like the book for him was healing um, because I was acknowledging that he too went through trauma. He too had all these feelings. Right. And, you know, probably in time felt like there was nothing more he could do for me you know? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that was huge. And now he's like my biggest fan. <laughs> <laughs> he tells everyone that I wrote this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's, it's not just my journey. It's our journey. Right. You know? Yeah. I'm telling our story as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause he was there the whole time. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. And, it, you know, I have learned that some people aren't really good at talking about their issues. They're better off just writing them, you know, so so it's like whatever way you could, you know, get your point across and communicate it, writing, talking, you know, recording yourself, yeah. send it to them, however it may be. Right. You know? But I feel like that probably was just like a great outlet for you to just let it all hang out, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I will tell you, like, I, um, I didn't realize that I had PTSD until 14 years later. So mm-hmm. I lived with all of this flight or flight stuff for 14 years. When we moved here to Colorado in 97, two years later, Columbine happened. Mm-hmm. The Columbine shootings, um, I was working as a hairdresser at the time, and I had left my client to process and went into the back and turned on our TV. Mm-hmm. And that's when all of the uh, coverage was all over the TV and I was watching it. And I I couldn't understand what was happening to me, but I was having flashbacks mm-hmm. because it was at a school. Yeah, The kids were around my same age. I saw the ambulances, the police officers, all the things, right? Mm-hmm. And I had flashbacks and I started sweating. I was having a panic attack. And I couldn't figure out why. Why was this happening to me? And because my practical side of me was like, I don't have any kids there. I don't live in that neighborhood, you know? But the other side of me was having all of these visceral reactions. Yeah. And my coworker looked at me and said, what is happening to you? What is going on? Do you have kids there? And I said, no, I have no idea what's happening. And it took me a minute, you know, but I did what I did, what I was good at. I put my mask on Mm -hmm. and I went out and I did my clients and they were none the wiser. Um, But the minute I walked through that door to go home, all of those old emotions came flooding back and the suicidal ideation came flooding back and I started to spiral and four days later, my husband left, you know, let me, uh, met me at the door and he said, you have two choices. You either get help or I'm going to put you in a hospital. Damn. And I'm a mom now. Like I was not, I knew how I felt, but at the same time I was a mom and I was not going to leave my kids, you know? So I agreed And I went to the doctor and he put me on antidepressants Mm -hmm. because that's what they do. And then he said, and you need to seek a therapist. (laughs) And I was like, oh, no, not again. (laughs) Right. Right. They only say this. They only talk. I mean, it didn't it didn't fix me 14 years ago. What's going to do now? Right. Right. But the godsend was that this woman that I did seek specialized in PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I told her a snippet of what I went through as 17 and what I was dealing with now. And she looked me straight in my face and said, everything that you've been through since you were 17 years old is 100% normal because you have PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I was like confused 
Because I thought, wait a minute, I'm not in the military. Right. I didn't go to war. I'm not first responder. Like, how can I have PTSD? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, here's the thing about PTSD. She said, anyone who has gone through anything traumatic in their life can experience PTSD. But the one thing you need to understand about PTSD is that it doesn't go away, but you can manage it. Right. And I swear the sky opened up and rainbow shot out because I realized I wasn't crazy. Mm-hmm. And that now I know what's going on with me. And now I have a therapist that can lead me mm-hmm. and guide me and give me a roadmap to start to feel better. Right. Um, so she gave me so much hope that I hadn't had in the past. And, you know, and so that started my journey. That was the, that was the turning point in my healing journey for sure. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And a, a lot of people, a lot of times I, you know, come across people and they think that sometimes you can get rid of certain things, but I tell them like, you have to ch- either channel that energy in a different direction or just like look head to head with that monster and just like, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm gonna put you in check, you know. And so I I definitely deal with that on my own. That's why I go to the gym because I'm like, I need an outlet. I need to do something to deal with like, you know, some of the things that I went through growing up, you know. Yeah. And we all and I but you know, it's not to measure which one is worse, but it's kind of like, you know, some people have their own version of it. Yeah. And, you know, the way we deal with it, you know, just figure out a way to deal with it, you know? Well, you know, what's really interesting is that one of the things that she told me right off the bat, because she knew I had a long road ahead of me, right? Mm -hmm. And um, she was going to start with the most, the easiest thing that I can do for myself. Mm -hmm. And that was journaling. And we were talking about it. She said, you know, journaling isn't just writing on paper. It's art. It's music, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that allows you to get what's swirling out in your head yeah. out. And so for me, it was writing, you know, and uh, so when I would journal, she said the best time to journal is at night. Because I don't know if you're the same way I am, but nighttime is when my brain kicks on. Mm-hmm. And the sucker doesn't want to shut off. And so it's just all the things that swirl around in your head. Mm-hmm. So she said, take the time, keep a journal by your bed and just write down all the things that are just swirling around in your head and close that journal when you're mm-hmm. done and go to sleep. And so that was kind of the start, you know, that was the one And, you know, and some people think journaling is so foo-foo and whatever, and it's not going to do anything for you. It's, it's changing your brain. It's, it's, you know, untraining your brain to, to hold on to all that stuff that's swirling. Right. So, so that was, that was amazing, you know, uh, right off the bat. And I realized, you know, after a week of doing that, that I was like, wow, I'm actually sleeping a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I didn't feel so anxious going to bed because every night I would be like, oh my God, I got to shut my, my eyes. And what am I going to see? And you know what I mean? It's <laughs> right, just like, yeah. you start like revving yourself up like, oh, mm-hmm. this is going to be bad. But yeah. So I, I just let go and I let the stuff out and, um, and then later she introduced me to, we kind of went into all the different things. So, you know, we dealt with that and then we dealt with the anxiety. Mm-hmm. So she, uh, she taught me tapping techniques, breath work, things like that, that were when I was in a, a state of anxiety, it would mm-hmm. allow me to center myself and allow the anxiety to dissipate. Um, and then we went into the doozy of EMDR, which she didn't do EMDR, but she sent me to somebody who did EMDR. Mm-hmm. And and that was that was incredible too. What I what I can say about healing is this: there is no one size fits all, all right. right? What happened or what I did, you know, may not may not work for other people, right? But what I tell people all the time when I have conversations around this is that you got to kind of find what works for you. Right. The biggest thing I think, and it's important point is that just because you go to a specific therapist, someone tells you to go to a therapist mm-hmm. um, who your insurance covers or whatever. If you don't feel a hundred percent safe with that person connecting with that person your healing's not going to happen right because your therapist your psychiatrist is someone that you need to be able to connect with and be vulnerable with and people will hold back their vulnerability with another person they don't feel safe with mm-hmm. they don't feel heard with and so just because they you were sent to a certain person, it's your right to figure out who works for you. Yeah. yeah. And I, I I think a lot of people don't understand that. Like they feel like they have to stick with this therapist. And I tell people like, you know, here's the thing. I think in order to make sure that it's a good fit, you know that in the first appointment. Yeah. Immediately. Don't wait for five sessions. Mm -hmm. Don't do what I did where I was like, Oh, next time he'll get it. Next time he'll fix me. Um, you'll know in the very first session, if you have a connection or not, if you feel safe or not, if you feel like you can be vulnerable with this person. Mm -hmm. So it's important, you know, it's important to know what, what, what is really truly going to heal you. And we go to therapy to be healed. Right. To find healing. So, you know, you don't want to waste your time. You don't want to waste your money. You don't, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You like, just reminded me of uh, one of my favorite movies, Goodwill Hunting, you know? Uh-huh. So, so it's like, you know, he just went through the uh, teacher went through hell trying to find a good therapist for him until he finally found the one that he was able to be vulnerable with, yep. you know? So it's like, yeah, it's kind of, kind of funny that you said that he was like, oh, I'm not going to deal with this guy, but it, if you don't truly feel like you could be vulnerable with somebody, if something, yeah. if you feel like something is off, 
like you said, it's okay to just break away and say, Hey, this isn't for me. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, and so that was kind of my, my, one of the things when I, when I started out on the writing journey on the, uh, for the book, um, the other side of the gun was born out of not only just wanting to tell my story, but I had a lot of fear around it because of several things, you know, uh, one, the men that are still out there, even though they're, you know, some of, some of them are not incarcerated, but some of them are, are still incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's still that, you know, that uneasy feeling of I'm putting myself out there. Right. The other thing was that, you know, in telling my truth, I had to tell the truth of my mother. Um, and I had to be honest and I knew that that could have a repercussion. Yeah. Um, and then there was the fear of, okay, I'm diving into this state of mind again. I'm, I'm diving into my trauma and, and feeling it, you know what I mean? And feeling all the feels I felt that night and moving forward in being able to tell my story and taking you alongside me as the reader. Right. Mm -hmm. And just having that fear of once I go that far, am I going to be able to pull back out of it? Right. And, and what I ended up doing is I, I realized that in writing this, my purpose was on the other side of it. And my purpose was helping others through my experiences, through my words, to find hope, to find the resiliency. Mm -hmm. And um, so every time I felt that fear, I have this tagline, bulldoze your fear, because fear holds you back from everything. Yeah. And in true... In, in true to yourself and in, in healing, you have to bulldoze your fear. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's what I did is I just kept thinking about the other people that this was going to help mm -hmm. on the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, Speaking of that, I wrote a long Facebook post uh, about how I grew up and my traumas and things like that. Right. And so with me speaking about it, I had to out my parents a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of like, you know, basically I didn't drink for a few years. Like I don't drink alcohol because when I would drink alcohol, those traumas would come up and then I'll just start acting crazy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So once I stopped, I had to like, okay, this is my anniversary of sobriety. I don't drink because things, these things happen to me and this is how I react. And I just had to tell the truth. Yeah. And I'm telling you, like, even though some of my family was disappointed, the right. amount of like love and support and understanding that I got from other people was just so, you know, it was like, wow, I just couldn't believe it, you know? And so I know for a fact, like it's, it's power in us being vulnerable and sharing our stories with the world. Because yeah. I, I even go back to that post, like I'll search for it and I'll just read the comments and it's just like, very fulfilling for me you know yeah. so even to this day it's like all it wow i would have never thought you were going through that growing up oh my god yeah. you're not yeah. the same or you know yep. somebody talking about oh i remember the day when you did that and now you're a totally different person you mm -hmm. know so i i am a big proponent of people being vulnerable and sharing their story i mean a few people may get kind of whatever but then it's like 
look at how many other people you could impact well and that's your truth that exactly i had to outweigh that especially with my mom's situation i had to outweigh her not liking what i had to say with what is the impact that i can make for others who have lived with the same scenario the same situation um you know, my hope is that I talk about a lot of different points in my book and um, my hope is that people find some kind of connection with it and they're able to be vulnerable. And what's really interesting is that um, I'll give you an example. I had a lady, um, I'm a hairdresser by or um, a realtor by trade and uh I had another realtor uh, person that I know in Texas and she lost her husband to COVID very quickly. Mm -hmm. And he was the pillar of health. Um, And he died within like five days. Um, It was just traumatic for her. And so she was really struggling, you know, and on the two year anniversary, she had posted something on, on social media and I saw it and I thought, She's really struggling. And I feel like I was called to send her a message. And I told her, I said, look, I wrote this book and I want to send it to you. And, um, you know, if that's okay, you know, I don't want to step on, you know, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but I would hope that somehow my book would find you, you know, give you some hope and some healing and, she was gracious and, and accepted my offer Mm -hmm. and she wrote, she read my book and I got an email or I got a, um, a social media message from her. And she said, Susan, thank you for writing this book because I was your mother a year ago. I, I was doing all the things that your mother did. I was drinking, I was alienating my family and making them, you know, I was angry. I was mean. I was all the things. And you just reminded me of that behavior and how I was. And my, my daughter was the one that said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going down this road. You're going to get help. And she did. She sought help. And she said, you know, I just want to thank you so much for reminding me that you don't always have to take that road and that there is help out there. And there is that I needed to step out of myself and accept the support system that was around me instead of crawling into a bottle of wine, you know, and that was amazing for me because she recognized herself, you know, she connected with my book Mm -hmm. in a way that I didn't even think would happen. Yeah, And so it's just, um, I love that I get insight from people who read it and they're able to connect with some thing in it, you know? Um, but they, the message is clear, like, you know, in order to get to the resiliency side, you got to do the work. Yeah. 
You just do. And it sucks and yeah, it's hard. It don't take a day. That's for me, I'm sure. <laughs> it doesn't. It takes time and you have to yeah. give yourself grace. I mean, trust me, when I wrote this book, like there were days where I was wiped. I was done. I was like, I can't, I can't function today. And I have to give myself grace and say mental health day. Right. Mm -hmm. And just kind of do something that brought me joy and peace. And then the next day I was able to kind of move on, you know, yeah. And that was the healthy way of doing it. Right. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's just, it takes time. It takes time and there's no timetable, right. you know? So. Yeah. As long as you keep working, take five years, 10 years. Exactly. You know, so <laughs> yeah, I, me doing this podcast and just talking to people from all walks of life. It's like, you know, you just never know when it will hit, you know? So. Yeah. You're doing the good work. You Thank are. You. <laughs> Thank and you. Uh, I think it's important, you know, this is a different, when I got into the podcast appearance thing, it was just a whole different like animal for me. Yeah. Um, but I have really enjoyed all the conversations. I think that our message is the same. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that people just need to know that when you are healing and when you're vulnerable, and you're able to get to the other side of that. It is the most powerful thing that you can do for yourself. Yeah. And the ripple effect is everyone around you, all your loved ones, they see this. And it allows them to do the same thing. Yeah. So you're teaching the people, your kids, mm -hmm. your siblings, whoever, who are watching you heal, that, that no matter what, thrown it their way that there is hope that right. they can get through it you know so i think it's 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 an important message for anyone who has gone through something and who is healing and i am not completed by any means like <laughs> just because i wrote a book does not mean i'm healed like it's a it's an ever-evolving thing right you're yeah. always uh, bettering yourself and you're always learning to be a healthier person. Um, and I'll do that until I'm no longer on this earth. Um, yeah. but you know, I will continue to preach this message of hope and of resiliency. And, um, I'll leave you with this. Uh, in July, I was in Southern California the last day I was there, I had told my husband we were going to go to the cemetery. And we went to the cemetery and visited my dad. And uh, his marker was a mess. So we had to give him a haircut and clean him up and make him look shiny again. And I had a couple of conversations with him. And then after we were done, before we went to the uh, airport, I told my husband I wanted to go to the school. Mm -hmm. And... The reason I wanted to go to the school is because there is a placard on the other side of Sadaquay, and you know where this is. Yeah. On the other side of Sadaquay, so that the front of the school is on Fairlone, the back of the school is Glade. On the Sadaquay sign is my dad's name, his badge, and his end of watch placard. And LAPD did this for all of the officers who were killed on the streets that they were killed. Mm -hmm. Um so I wanted to go see that. And anytime I have ever been by that school, 
my anxiety level was level 10. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I was always sick to my stomach. I was always super nervous. Um but this time when we went, I felt really at peace. Mm-hmm. And I was able to take pictures and 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 you know, really kind of enjoy that moment. And I was driving that day and I told my husband, mm, I want to do one more thing. I want to go one more place. And he was like, oh, okay, no problem. So we got back in the car and we started to drive down Farallone and we started to make the right on the street that connects Glade and Farallone. And my husband looked at me and said, what are you doing? Where are you going? Hmm. Um, and I could see, hear it in his voice that he was really nervous, like not knowing what was happening right now. Mm-hmm. And I said, give me a minute. And I drove up the street and I made the ride on Glade. I went up the street. I turned the car around and I sat there and I was able to describe to my husband everything that I saw that night where my dad's truck was, where the ambulance was, where the police officers were walking around, how we exited the back of the school, like all of those things. And for the first time in my life, I was not anxious. I was at complete peace. Wow. And I had to do that. I had, it, it wasn't even a plan. It was just, how far can I push myself? Mm-hmm. How far has this book allowed me to heal? And and when I did that, of course, there were tears of, I can't believe this. I didn't think in a million years this would ever happen. And I think my husband felt the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was a moment that we shared together. And there wasn't anyone in the world that I would have wanted to share this moment with. But I really felt like I was at peace and that I had come full circle. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, it took, what, 37 years? Almost 38 years. <laughs> yeah, 38 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's kind of like, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a testament to what you were just saying. Like, you just, there's no time limit on it, you know? No, there isn't. Yeah. Because there's and... somebody that probably could have did what you did in a couple months, you know, but then it yeah. took you. You know, so it's like, hey, we all have our own personal journey, our own perspectives, our own way of doing things, but just do the work, right? (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, that's, I I think that's my testament to bulldozing your fear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Because anybody would have been fearful of going to that place, you know, seeing that spot. Uh, But I wasn't. And I, I just feel like when you do do that work, when you get to that place, man, it's indescribable, the feeling. Mm-hmm. And I, I I finally feel like I'm at a place now where I can help others, you know, and starting my coaching business, my life coaching business and, um, and just really helping people and guiding them from, you know, not the therapy side of it, but just like wherever they are now, you know, Mm. what is the plan moving forward? How can I help guide you um, 
in a way that's going to allow you to have the type of life that you want. Yeah, um, sounds sounds like a great idea for a nonprofit, if you ask me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it'll, it'll be a great name it after your father, you know, because there's yeah. a lot of kids that, you know, or people that go through that, you know, yep. parents that were killed tragically, and now they have to move on and, you know, right. try to be normal, you know what I mean, in the world. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Wow. So in closing, I ask everyone this question, right? Um, how would you, you are, I feel like you already answered it, but when you leave this earth, how would you want to be remembered? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I actually did this and it was crazy. Cause I, after right, I had to write my, uh, my eulogy my own eulogy in a training. And uh, I thought, oh my gosh, once I read it, once I wrote it, I was like, gosh, I got a lot of work to do. (laughs) 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 Got a lot of work. Right. Um, I think, honestly, I feel like I want to be known for the person who made you feel heard. Mm Mm-hmm that allowed you a safe space to be vulnerable and tell your story and own it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my legacy for my kiddos, right, is this book, but it's also the journey, you know, um, and knowing that no matter what life throws at you, if you do the work through it, you can be free from your pain. So, um, you know, so that's, that's what I want to, that's what I want to be known for. That's, that's what's important to me to leave behind is, is that I was the type of person that made them feel loved and heard and, um, the type of person that would allow them to be vulnerable and know that they were safe. Wow. Susan Snow, the voice for the voiceless. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so where can people find you? I know your book is on Amazon, but do you have a, um, like a, uh, URL, like susansnow.com or anything like that? Yeah. So I do have a website at susansnowspeaks.com. Uh-huh. And, uh, and there is a section in there. If there's any of your listeners that feel like they want to reach out in any kind of way, just, um, uh, maybe they're in a place where they, they're not sure where, you know, which way to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they can contact me through my website. If you are someone who feels that I would be a benefit to speak at any kind of, you know, work event or whatever. Uh, you can contact me through there as well. Um, and I do have, I just started a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm learning. Right. It's it's a learning curve. Um, and it's also Susan Snow Speaks. And um, I'm working to get my podcasts uploaded. <laughs> <laughs> okay, in due time, in due time. Oh, and yeah. also, um, I can't forget... My um uh, my uncle and auntie Tim and Natalie Gibson, the retired uh LAPD detectives, they send their condolences to you. My oh, uncle was actually um uh, in the LAPD while this happened, 
And, you know, while that happened to your father and he recalled it all, you know, so he definitely sends condolences out to you. Yeah. I mean, you tell them that I wrote this book partly for them. Uh, There is so much pain and anger and emotion around my dad's death because of the way it happened. Mm -hmm. Um, That was another reason why I wrote it is that I was hoping that I would help them to heal in some sort of way as well. Find peace. Yeah. Right. So I'm definitely going to send him this interview, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. Uh, No problem. Again, Susan, thank you so much. Um, To be honest, I had to, you know, warm up to this because I knew I'm a pretty sensitive guy. So, you know, I'm kind of glad I didn't like start crying or anything like that, you know, (laughs) hearing, hearing it. It would have been totally fine if you had. It's all good. I was like, like, once I read it, you are human. Oh my God, this is way heavier than I thought, you know? Yeah. I I should have told you, Sherman, like strap yourself in. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I was like, hold on. What? Oh, because I mean, when we first talked about it, you was like, my brother was there. Then I was like, hold on. Your brother was in the car. Like what? It was a machine gun. And, you know, I was like, who, what? You know, so. Your dad yeah. shielded him and I was like, yeah. oh my God, this is there was a just so you know, there was a TV movie made. Um, it's I think it's on Amazon now. It's it's on Peacock as well. It's called The Um Price of Vengeance. Mm-hmm. And um it it it, it sort of channels <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what happened. Yeah. Um but I was a creative consultant on that movie, and so is my mom. And um, and to be, to be honest, like I have a love hate relationship with that movie. But <laughs> I just feel like it could have gone in a different direction. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was, uh, my mom had full, um, say on what the movie was to look like. And I really didn't have a voice at the time. So uh, I just kind of, you know, it is yeah. what it is. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, like we said, everybody has their own perspectives, you know? Exactly. <laughs> it is what it is. So, yeah, but it, yeah, but it's out there. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, because when I tell people my, some people, when I tell them my story, I'm like, they're like, oh, that sounds like a movie. And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well the book, it is the, the book could be a, a <laughs> and it's my movie. life <laughs> right right we can turn the it's book both. into a movie that after, not just a tragedy but then it's like after it how do people yeah go, you know, so. well you know if there's someone out there that wants to make a movie about it i'm open but right. you know i i just yeah i i definitely you know my my uh motivation for this was obviously to heal myself Mm-hmm. the cathartic part but i really wanted to get my story out to to try to help others who have dealt with some kind of trauma in their life um it doesn't have to be as extreme right. as mine and you know everybody's trauma is different and right. um and it's just as important right so mm-hmm. yeah oh man susan again thank you so much this has been awesome Thank very you. Encouraging, very inspiring. And, you know, the resiliency that you have is 
whew, almost unmatched, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, keep it up. Kudos to you. Thank you. Uh, continue on your journey. Continue to go strong. You know, get the message out there. Start a nonprofit if you can. Because you know? <laughs> <So, laughs> I'm sure there'll be a lot of people out here to support this incredible story. So again, thank you, thank you so much. You know, which just I thank you. Thank you. So thank much. you. You're I appreciate you having me on your oh. show. Oh, not a problem. All right. So you take All care. Right. Okay. You All too. Right. Bye. Okay. Bye.